HRN listeners. As we celebrate our 15th year, we are deepening our commitment to giving voice to the next generation of food system storytellers, and we need your help. Our internship and fellowship programs help activate new possibilities for underrepresented and underestimated young people through experiential journalism, audio engineering, and production training. Through these unique programs, HRN helps food equity stewards build essential workforce readiness skills that expand their potential and foster economic mobility. Please consider supporting these critical programs. And with a minimum donation, you can be entered to win a dinner for two at an amazing restaurant in one of eight cities and tickets to a concert at a great venue in one of those cities. We have incredible partners across the country who have donated as they also share our passion for helping to educate the next generation of food system storytellers. Check out heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. That's heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. And make sure you donate before March 31st. Thank you. The James Beard Foundation is a nonprofit with the mission to celebrate, nurture, and honor chefs and other leaders, making America's food culture more delicious, diverse, and sustainable for everyone. And right now, it's working to respond to the dire situation the food and beverage community is in due to the COVID-19 pandemic. Restaurants, bars, and other independent food and beverage operations are often on the front lines of community revival. The majority of culinary community businesses have less than 500 employees, but collectively this industry generates $1 trillion a year, 60% of which is pumped back into their local business communities. To help bring swift economic relief to these essential businesses, the James Beard Foundation launched a fund to provide microgrants to independent food and beverage businesses in need. You can donate at jamesbeard.org relief. Hey, 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 welcome to Beer Sessions Radio on the Heritage Radio Network. Hey guys, it's March 31st. This is a special COVID ep- episode of Beer Sessions Radio. We're re- all recording remotely. We're going to introduce a different guest and we'll be talking about Cascale, which is a pretty nice subject to talk about uh, when we're all confined to our homes. So I'm Jimmy Carboni. I'm the host here at Heritage Radio Network. And then I'll ask Paul Pendike to introduce himself. Hi, everybody. I'm Paul Pendike from UK Brewing Supplies. I supply Cascale equipment to the uh, the industry, in, primarily in the USA, but also in uh, further afield. Great. And now Steve Hamburg. Hello again, everybody. Um, I'm Steve Hamburg. I represent Castmark Americas, which is the Castmark certification program's uh, representative in the United States. Castmark in the UK has over 10,000 pubs. In the US, we have about a dozen. Great. Greg Engert. Hey, everybody. Uh, this is Greg Engert uh, coming to you from Washington, D.C. I have uh, a number of bars and restaurants down here, but also the Grand Delancey in the Lower East Side of Manhattan. Great. Tony Forder. Hi, everyone. This is uh, Tony Forder, Ale Street News. Uh, like Paul, a native Brit. All right, and then we'll bring it to Michael from Duchess Ales. Give it an intro, and then we're going to talk about how we brought the show together. Okay, hey guys, this is Michael Messini with Duchess Ales in New York State, um, specializing um, in cask ales. That's great. So, Michael, uh, we've been talking about having you on for a while, and uh, just give us a little backstory on Duchess Ales and why you have a cask focus. And then we'll get we'll get more into the conversation. Yeah. Okay. Um, well, I originally come from California, and I didn't really. Um, my first exposure to beer was sort of more of the West Coast craft beer scene. But um, soon after college, I was living in the UK for a little bit, and um, and then frequently returning, um, you know, at least once a year, sometimes twice a year, living there on and off, and. This is really where I first fell in love. Um, I found my beer, as it were, and fell in love with uh, traditional cask ales um, and those balanced beers uh, of the UK. So um, Duchess Ales is kind of an attempt to um, reflect those passions. Um, We started, uh, should I get into a little bit of the full history of the origins of the brewery or... 
Yeah, a little, little bit about what you're okay. doing, yes. Yeah, well, we started um, We started about 2013. We got our license in 2015. And um, our goal at that time was to make exclusively um, Cascales. Um, everything we made um, went to either um, Pins or Firkins, supplied by our friend Paul. And, um, you know, this was a little bit... Um, commercial suicide as it were because there's as as i'm sure we'll talk about there aren't that many places um to serve this type of beer but it was really the passion um that i had and the passion my my business partner tim had um these are the beers that we wanted to drink these are the beers that we couldn't find anywhere um uh be it cask or, or um keg we couldn't find balanced um reasonable lower ABV delicious beers to drink. So um, we just did it ourselves. Um, And then uh, being a little bit idealistic about the whole thing, uh, when we went pro, as it were, and got our license, we stuck with just producing Cascales. Um, We've expanded on from that now uh, because we need to at least try to make some semblance of a profit, Um, but uh, still um, producing Cascales and trying to make every beer um, first and foremost uh, drink great um, coming from cask. That's always how I'm envisioning the beer, what it's going to taste like coming out of uh, a beer engine. Great. So let's get some more. Thanks, Michael. We'll get some more backstories. Let's go with Steve Hamburg. Steve, for 20 years, you've been trying to promote and get more people aware of cask ales in America. And yet, it keep running up against. It, it's really not catching on. Sometimes it, it's not being done properly. Give us your backstory and, and how you first got involved with it. I know you had an Oregon Cast Festival over twenty years ago. Well, uh, my story is similar, I guess, to Mike's in that uh, I'm not a, not from the UK. I'm a Washingtonian by birth and upbringing, and I uh, have lived in Chicago where I've been since uh, the 70s where I came for grad school, and then very much got into involved in the homebrewing scene. But uh, I really got into cask ale uh, in the 80s through my IT profession. Luckily, the company I worked for had a branch in the UK, and in my travels, uh, my colleagues there introduced me to the and. Um, it was an eye opener, and I think the satis- the joy of being in pubs, is something I really felt I wanted to share with my friends back home. Um, so that go- I guess my first trips, serious trips, started uh, in the late 1980s. So I'd say eight, 1987, 88. Then I got more and more into it. It started to travel more frequently, and. Um, through my connections with uh, Mark Dorber, who is a well-known cellarman in the UK. I had met him through my travels and eventually forced him to give me uh, some training in doing cast properly. He had me come into the pod and like, work in the cellar. So that, that's how I kind of was taught the ropes. Uh, it's been a battle, I think. I, I started writing articles for Glamergy uh, focusing on the production of uh, cask ales, but also just being sessionable beers like, uh, like bitter or mild. Um, the the old joke I have with cask ale in terms of the promotion is that um, we started in Chicago. We started the Real Ale Festival in like 1996, and uh, a new beer writer, Stan Hieronymus, who was living in uh, Peoria, Illinois at the time. He had come up and we had a long conversation. He said, in the in the world of good beer, where is cask beer? And I said, well, if, if craft beer, which was kind of a new thing then, is a niche product, then cask ale is a niche of a niche of a niche. <laughs> and and uh, every time I see Stan, which is uh, thankfully enough, uh, regularly, at least you know, annually, and every time he sees me, he always says, okay, I have to ask you, is it still a niche of a niche of a niche? And I have to say, in the United States, that's definitely what it is. Well, that's great, Steve. So a little backstory. I mean, I think that 
uh, Tony Forder, you want to tell us a little bit about camera and real ale. I just want to say that uh, for my era of, of craft beer, there's been a lot of misunderstanding and very few people have had a true cask condition ale. What's so great about it? Because usually we don't have an example to compare it to. Uh, yeah. Hi, Jimmy. You're talking to me? <laughs> yes, Tony. Okay, yeah. Well, um, the uh, the beauty of cask conditioned beer and why, why it's popular is it's because it's, uh, it's naturally fermented. It has natural carbonation. So when it is put in the cask, um, instead of adding CO2 uh, to create the bubbles, uh, additional yeast is added, and then it re-ferments in the cask, and it results in a softer, some say more purer uh, flavor of beer. And you don't get this gassy feeling in your stomach. Some people call it flat, but that's really not true. Yeah, I know that Steve, what, what Steve was saying when he mentioned the cellar man, there's a role of a person in, in these traditional ales. And I do feel that, that with technology, that, that person's job's been eliminated. It seems that if we really want craft, we need to have people involved. Um, Paul Pendike, you've kind of dedicated your business in the States UK Brewing Supply to promoting cask ale. So tell us about your backstory, why you love cask ales, and the journey you've been on. It's, I know it's 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 hard being a cask ale promoter in the states. Yeah, absolutely. Um, I first started getting involved in uh, importing products because I was an avid home brewer and I got sick of dealing with Cornelius kegs. So I wanted to try and get some pins. I saw an ad in a trade publication in the UK for a company over there that was supplying uh, cask cooling equipment primarily uh, to the industry. I contacted them, said, is anybody representing you in the, in the U.S.? And they said, well, actually, we've just sent a bunch of stuff over to the U.S. for the Real Ale Festival, which Steve mentioned earlier. So uh, we established a relationship. I found a guy that had some used Firkins. Um, I got Ale, uh, Ale Street News, I think it was, looked around, uh, spoke to a guy up in New Jersey, and he said that Jim Lutz at Wild Goose was looking for some casks. I contacted him. Uh, he said he'd take 100. I didn't even have a company formed at that point in time. I said, well, can you send me a check for 50%, which he did, payable to me personally. I always remember this fondly. Um, we'd never even met, you know, and he sent me quite a few grand. And that's really what kicked it off. Um, you know, I mean, I agree with, with Steve. It's still a niche of a niche of a niche. And actually, it's becoming a niche of a niche of a niche of a niche of a niche, I think, over the past few years, unfortunately. Um, the sad part is, is that if you do it right, and maybe Greg uh, will be able to verify this, but, you know, I used to own a British pub in uh, PA, where we have two beer engines and Cascale on all the time. Variety of beers. We do get some British beers in there. We have a local brewery that brews a mild at 3.2% and an ordinary bit for 3.8%. If you do it right and you get your staff behind it, it can really become a great seller. Uh, because I think when people get in tune with this fact that I can go and I can drink beer pretty well all night at 3.2%. You know, if you have a bite to eat, you're not like kind of pouring them down your throat. And it really then is a session beer. And that's the objective of it. You know, I mean, that's the beauty of it in my mind. You know, the lower carbonation, the warmer temperature enhances the flavor in any beer. And, um, you know, it's just a great quaff. You know, I mean, you can really quaff it down. Um, so, it would be great to see it become more popular in the in in the US but um you've got to get the people that have the passion that want to do it right have some pride in the product that they're putting across the bar and uh, unfortunately i think that's a little lacking Th thank you paul just before we get to greg i want to say I, i've i've tried to be an advocate for cascale i at one time i had some a setup from from you paul and we had the biggest issue was was getting a cast condition keg. You know, we would have uh, Ridgeways or Conistons coming in from England, but they were very expensive, um, and we really didn't have anyone that I knew regularly who was making it. But Greg, you you you've you're, you're I'm really impressed that you have cast condition ales at 
with, with a hand pull at uh, Grand Delancey. So tell us your experience with it, because you're really kind of our senior, uh, you know, pub, good beer uh, operator. Yeah, thanks, Jimmy. Um, you know, I think the, the first thing about real ale is to your point about expense. Um, if at this point, if you want to if you want to showcase real ale, um, you have to make it uh, accessible to the public. And so to that end, we found out a long time ago that it was better to charge a price that was affordable and accessible to make sure that the beer would move rather than maybe trying to get the same um, markup we would get on, on, on draft beer. So, you know, real ale is truly a labor of love for us. And we believe it should be served in large portions. You know, we serve all of our real ale in 20 ounce um, uh, Imperial pints and, we want people to to enjoy uh, real ale, you know, in a sessionable way and not break the bank. We found that when we used to charge more for it, uh, oftentimes the the firkins would go bad. We wouldn't get through everything in time, and so we ended up dumping some of the beer. And so we just said, you know, let's just make this something that everybody can be introduced to, everybody can enjoy, and it's worked out in D.C. Um, and and Northern Virginia. I think we have a 16 different hand pumps across our properties, uh, including Church Key, Blue Jacket, which is our brewery, uh, the two Rusticos in Virginia, Evening Star Cafe and Columbia Firehouse. We added two more hand pumps in uh, New York City at the Grand Delancey. And, um, you know, we find that, yes, it's niche, but if it's priced right um, and if it's well taken care of, people really love it. Greg, are you serving only English ales on cask, or do you have any American breweries that are making it with you? Oh, no. So we, we serve American breweries. In, in fact, you know, Michael's a, a friend, and I love the work that he does at Dutch Sales. We've served uh, a lot of his uh, casks um, at Grand Delancey since opening back in November. Um, but, yeah, we don't, we're not particular necessarily about where it comes from, but what we are extremely – particular about are the styles. So, you know, we are looking to showcase classic British style beer from Cass, but uh, we love it when American brewers like Dutch's Ales uh, do it so well. So what we aren't looking to do, though, is to use uh, the Firkin and the, and the Cask engine as um, uh, just a means to showcase another uh, spin on an American double IPA or something like that. And for a long time, I think that had gained a lot of popularity to have, you know, an imperial sweet stout with tons of different adjuncts in it. We're looking to pour bitter, mild, uh, porters, dry stouts, um, really aiming to be under 5% at all times because we feel that these beers um, are best showcased by uh, cast presentation. And that frankly, I just don't think you can get malt-driven beers, low-alcohol malt-driven beers, just don't um, impress and, um, and and show their, their true selves the way they do uh, from cask. That's great, Greg. It's funny because, yeah, about 10 or 12 years ago, it seemed that every time there was a cask festival, it was an excuse for a brewery to make a really random, over-the-top beer that you wouldn't usually even buy. So, Steve, you're back on. Yeah. Um, you know, you've been doing this for 20 years. Want to mention a few breweries that have been devotees of the true cast style and rather than just breweries that kind of jumped on when it was a fad? Well, I think there were always, at the, at the earliest days when we were doing our cast fest, there were very few people who had the equipment. So let's just talk about the evolution. When we first did the Real Ale Festival in Chicago in 96, uh, the only brewers who act, there were like two brewers in the United States who actually, who provided casks to us, who actually had casks. Most people sent their beer, the U.S. brewers at least, sent it in Hoff Stevens or Sankey's or even old Golden Gate casks uh, because we just didn't have uh, the Firkins at the time. And uh, there were one or two in the Northeast uh, and New York, like in Manhattan specifically, there were a couple places that had access to tasks. 
but we did bring beer from the UK. And uh, I think people were inspired after that to uh, get casks uh, and do their beer properly. And as uh, the R Fest evolved over the next few years, the, it got to the point where it was no problem getting beers and casks, at least from U.S. brewers. Uh, and guys like Paul stepped in and, and provided uh, the breweries with an easier way to get casks. Pins came much later, so they were inevitably were Perkins. And um, I have to say, at the beginning, most of, although we had beers in a lot of different styles, uh, predominantly the beers were pretty classic British styles. And uh, the, the goofiness that we started to see that is really kind of the second round in the craft brewing industry, where many of us who uh, have done cast for a while, we joke now that what is the shive hole that's a large bunghole on a cast. We say, what's that for? Well, brewers today look at it and say, what the hell can I put in that hole? <laughs> we prefer beer and maybe some dry hops. But now it's become, you know, this, you know, back up the truck and dump as much stuff and uh, pink peppercorns and uh, all sorts of crazy additions that are non-traditional. And yet it really goes against the grain because what happens is, is that it's bad and it's hard enough to get a beer to be good in a cast, to get your carbonation right, to get the balance right, and to serve it where it's in beautiful shape. When, without putting all these other additions in, those, those are new variables that make it harder to serve a beer that, that has balance or is presented well, that has good carbonation. So... Uh, we're now all over the place. And uh, the joke now is, even in the UK, we're, we're, we started to see that clarity, which is really, really should be a hallmark of Cascade, uh, even clarity has gone down because it's become so uh, popular to have hazy beers. And yet uh, the cask itself is designed to help produce really bright, clear beers. Thank you, Steve. So, does does someone want to jump on to what Steve was saying? Well, this is, this is Mike here. I mean, it's funny. The first time I heard Steve say that, I went to a, um, I think a function that Paul put on down in Pennsylvania, and I think I I think he had the whole room laughing because everybody was thinking the same thing as about he, as he said it. Um, you know, the the joke about the just because the cask has a hole in the top doesn't really mean it's a license to put uh, whatever you'd like in there. And I think that is something that, and, and, you know, Steve has already said it, but I think that is something that's set the cast game back um, a little bit here in, in the U S that I think a lot of people have gone into bars and had pretty disgusting um, cask ales. Um, one I recall, I, I, I'm not going to say where, where I had it in case this um, dear man's listening. But I had um, a jalapeno stout um, on cask that was almost kicked. So as you can imagine, at the bottom of the firkin was probably three pounds of jalapenos. And I don't think it occurred to the brewer that when the cask got low, it was just going to be incredibly bitter and, and foul. And I, I think things like that have not really helped um, the cask beer scene in the U.S., but um, I'm sure we Michael, all have stories like that. And we have a million of them. And Michael, so you as a brewer, tell us mm -hmm. what you're doing that's different when you're brewing a, a beer for cask than a typical craft brewer would for non-cask. Just give us a little of the basics technically, because I do know that, and from what Steve said, there, there was traditionally a role of a cellar person, which was the, the added finishing of a cask. But tell us what, mm. what steps you're doing in the brewery. Well, I mean, I, I package all my casks. And first, of, first and foremost, every beer I make, as I mentioned in my introduction, I in, is a beer that I envision drinking um, out of a cask, well served. Um, so, I mean, I'm really focusing on making all the beers we have in our current lineup, which is about six beers, are all under 5.4%. 
and they all have um, what I feel like is good balance. And I think that is something that is also really important going forward that I think producers of Cascale uh, need to kind of accept where the U.S. market's palate is. And I don't think beers need to be quite overly malty. Um, our beers certainly have a uh, pronounced malt quality, and I, I really try to focus on um, using the highest quality malt products and, and really accentuating that. But at the end of the day, I'm trying to balance that with hot bitterness, um, with the weight of the beer. And uh, I think um, if, if people were drinking beers like that consistently from cask, I think um, there's a bright future for it. But what I do um, is really just to make sure that when it leaves the brewery, um, it is primed properly to, you know, taking into account maybe 10 days, two weeks of conditioning by the time it turns up at um, somewhere like Grand Delancey for, for Greg to tap, that it's in um, optimal condition. Of course, these things are, I have a distributor, so sometimes these things are out of my hands. Um, you know, in a perfect world, I'd be delivering these directly um, to a pub. But uh, I think so the, the Michael, best I can do is Michael, send it off. Excuse. Yeah, of course. Oh, yeah. Um, so you're saying an ideal – and traditionally, the, the keg would have been delivered to the pub, and it would have undergone its conditioning in the pub cellar. Exactly. But, yeah, the, the landlord would, would receive it, and he'd know that it needs about 10 days. And um, – and would sort of babysit it until it's ready. Um, but nowadays, I don't think people are afforded that time. I don't think, for instance, Greg wants something sitting in his, you know, in his cold box for uh, two weeks before he even gets to look at it. So um, I, what I try to do is prime it and then let people know about the date it's going to be drinking. So I'd say I, I like 10 days personally. Uh, I'm sure maybe Paul and Steve might have other ideas or Greg. Um, but yeah, I think that's the way I have to operate. But yeah, in the UK, obviously these things go right and they get um, they get primed and they leave they leave the brewery and the landlords receive them with a with a packaging date and know approximately when that thing's going to be ready to drink. Okay, let's let's um, just going to keep talking to get things organized. Um, okay. Who would like to answer the question? I, I feel like do you know of a seller person in England? who we could name, who you would say we should aspire to, or this is the person that really does their job the way that you need to properly serve Cascale. Well, sure. yeah, yeah, Jimmy, I mean, Steve mentioned him before, Mark Dorber, who used to be the cellarman at uh, the White Horse and Parsons Green. He's most probably the most renowned cellar person in the UK, I would think. Steve, if you disagree, jump in. But, uh, you know, he was featured. I don't know if anybody's seen uh, Michael Jackson's uh, collection of videos, but Mark's, Mark's in that, and now he has a pub. I think it's in East Anglia. Um, he has two pubs now. But, so. but there's actually a lot of them that maybe aren't as famous. You know, I mean, um, there's a pub that I always go to just down the road uh, from where my mum lives in London, a Young's pub the hare and hounds and whoever's handling the cellar there is doing a great job because you always get a great pint. So I think there's a lot of, a lot of uh, people in the UK that are doing a re really good job. Um, I'd like to jump in quickly, if I may, on Steve's comment. You know, that was part of the problem that, you know, the brewers, they hit a, a, a time when they looked at Cascale as an opportunity for them to experiment without them actually having to waste a whole batch. You know, they could just throw some crap in. I mean, I always joke, like, you know, they put a dead squirrel on that. Last week's dirty socks in there to see how it turned out. And, you know, that, that's part of the problem with the cask ale um, and has been over the past few years is that really people aren't, or, you know, certain brewers are not really seeing what it's about, that the fact is that it can enhance what they're doing with the beers that they're producing if they do it correctly. And another thing that we haven't touched upon, and, you know, a friend of Steve's who he did um, the Real Ale Festival, and a, a friend of mine, of course, Ray Daniels, 
wrote a paper called The Perfect Pint. You know, what we've got to remember here is because this beer is still alive, it's still changing slightly. And Ray's um, analogy was that, you know, there'll be times when you will go into a pub and have a pint and whether the moon is in the seventh house or wherever it is, it's like the perfect pint. I mean, I can remember, I can remember driving through Yorkshire and I just stopped at a pub for lunch and I had a pint of uh, Riding Bitter and it was outstanding. I was in the Spotted Pig in New York and I had a pint of their bitter, which I believe was produced by Brooklyn Brewery and it was spot on. So that's one of the beauties of it as well is that it's this thing is alive. It's not dead. It's still going on. So there's going to be slight differences whether you had a pint today and you go back to the pub and have it tomorrow. It's going to be slightly different. So um, unfortunately, I think a lot of brewers, you know, are, are missing that. And, um, you know, it's so easy to mask uh, deficiencies in the beer by overpowering it with the ingredient, you know, of whatever you're going to put in, Himalayan sea salt or what, you know, who knows what the hell. So that's the sad part of it, actually. Anyway, I'll get off my soapbox. Oh, you know, you're great, Paul. Th- thank you so much. And I'll tell you, we're, uh, we're going to go to a short break, but I just want to say, especially in these times, it's one more reason why we're trying to support local food and beer systems because there's certain things that always taste better when they're local and when there's a person involved in, in that craft. Um, we'll be back in a few minutes on Beer Sessions Radio. All right. Restaurants employ over 15 million people nationwide, and two-thirds of all restaurants are independently owned and not part of big chains. Yet, currently, these small businesses are not represented in government relief negotiations. Roar is working to change that by fighting for relief opportunities for all restaurants. Roar is advocating for an eight-point plan in New York State that will allow restaurants to reopen and rehire when the time comes. Dozens of industry leaders have signed onto this plan, like Namwa Tea Parlor, Field Trip, Momofuku, and many more of your favorites. You can join them at change.org by searching for Roar, relief opportunities for all restaurants. Hey, 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 welcome back to Beer Sessions Radio on the Heritage Radio Network. Hey, guys, it's that time of year. Uh, Become a member for heritageradionetwork.org. We're all going through a rough time, but this is a a way to connect with a lot of people and support your food systems. Support heritageradionetwork.org. So we've got a great show right now. We're talking about Cascales, and to me, the beauty of Cascale, there's a lot of traditions. Um, You know, Tony Forder, going back to camera, you know, this this was what English ale was. It was cask ale, real ale. But didn't Camera create the term real ale? I mean, what was it called before? Was it just called beer? It was called traditional British ale, basically, served in the pubs on the hand pump. I mean, you, you do have to realize we wouldn't even be probably talking about cask beer if it wasn't for Camera, the campaign for real ale, um, which was um, basically uh, a group that got started by four four guys um, in 1973, I believe, which was coincidentally, that's about when I started uh, entering official beer drinking age. And I took right to to the local beer, which was kind of frowned on by my father. He didn't drink it. Um, this was the days of uh, when mass production was looked upon as a superior product to a, to a local type product. So uh, a lot of these, uh, the bigger breweries were going migrating to kegs because they were more efficient they get the bigger volume and the cask beer was getting left behind and thanks to the campaign for real ale i really saved day for cask beer now where i'm from in sussex england the local brewery harvey's was struggling back in the 70s and now they've been going great guns for the last 20 30 years so thanks to the survival of cask condition beer oh that's great tony um yeah, no, it's it's very, very interesting history, and it seems that now the last five years with the rise of, of newer craft breweries, no one's really been talking about it. So, Michael, I'm really glad that you brought this up. So let's talk about the 
current cask ale advocates in the United States. So first, Michael, originally we had planned this show because it was a preview to Nirax, the New mm-hmm. England Real Ale Fest. Tell us about Nirax and you know what, what we should know about the people that organize that. Well, to be honest with you, we were this this year would have been my second Nirax. Um, last year we were in Nirax, but I wasn't able to go because I had the flu. So I don't know the guys too well, but I know that it is the um, the Northeast's longest running cask festival, and um, I know that they get a really good turnout every year. I think Greg Greg may have been maybe he could speak a little bit more to the actual festival. Um, but they get a great turnout. Um, they um, get brewers from all around the states um, uh, giving beer to the festival, although it is kind of a New England, Northeast focus. And um, they seem to really know their stuff. Um, one of the guys who is involved in the organization, his name is Randy Barrel. He actually wrote a book called... Um, I can't remember the name of the title, but it is essentially how to put on a cask ale festival. And it involves um, a pretty nice appendix about cellarmanship, which is really taken really probably verbatim from the kind of classic cellarmanship manual that's available. Um, you can find on Amazon and what have you that um, I think maybe my copy came from Paul. Um, but yeah, it's, it's a wonderful festival that I, I wish we were involved in this year, but of course, like everything else has been canceled. Thank you, Michael. And I'll just give some shout outs. I mean, I first uh, experienced Cask Fest and and Cask in New York City, partly through Paul Pendyke, through some of his friends, Alec Hall. I know Chris Kuzme Mm -hmm. and uh, Patrick Donaher were part of some Cask Fest. I know that at Fifth Hammer, they they still are doing the the Cascalot Festival, so that there, there's it's still going in the city. Um, but for Greg, Greg, how do you work this into your business, and how can people make it better? You know what what what's missing, and and you know, let's get you back on. Sure. Um, well, I guess you know the the thing about about real ale is that. It's, it's something that, that people are often um, excited to try. And every person who tries it, again, when, it, when, it's, when it's prepared properly, comes back for it. That, to me, just means that we have opportunity now that um, is not necessarily being embraced by a larger community. But it is, it is definitely uh, – the opportunity is definitely there, again, along with, like, proper beers, proper handling, and proper um, – Pricing. I think you know people like like Paul Pendyke and, and Michael. You know these are are friends of mine who have been doing uh, the right thing with Real Ale for a long time. And I think what's important for all of us to kind of band together to make sure that this happens. Um, but it also takes uh, some honesty about the the beer itself. You know we 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 work with um, you know, a lot of the same people that I think Nirax works with like Shelton brothers and be united to bring over real ale from the, from, from the, from the UK, uh, love to work with brewers like, uh, you know, Ridgeway and Coniston, like you mentioned, fine ales, uh, more beer company, Harvestoon, uh, from time to time, Harvey's even makes its way over here, which is my favorite, uh, real ale, but you have to, you have to care for it. And if it's not right, you have to pull it, you have to report it, and um, we have to be honest about the losses we're going to take um, regarding it. You know, again, this is not a, uh, a this is not a beer that's going to drive huge margins. In some ways, it can be a loss leader, but it reminds people why it is so important. And this is especially uh, kind of pertinent and surreal to say right now why it, it, it was and will again be so important to leave your home and drink at bars and restaurants socially. Um, you know, talking about this right now, I know I cannot drink real ale uh, at home. And this is something that I think is so cool when we think about why, why should we encourage people not just to line up for canned beer, trade it online and, and, and drink it surreptitiously in their homes, and, you know, always trying to give people reasons to come out to beer bars, go out to the best pubs, go out to restaurants and drink beer. I think Catskill is, is one of the best examples for that. If you can go out and drink great, great Catskill, 
this is the this is an experience you cannot uh, replicate um, at home. So uh, when all this is kind of said and done, and we can get back to it, I hope that other publicans join join us in in in, in pushing that agenda and getting people to experience flavors and textures that they can't experience otherwise. Thank you, Greg. I'm going to make a toast to you. If anybody has a glass, they can toast. Um, It's a quick moment. Let's just everyone go around and and say, if they're drinking a beer, what they're drinking. So I'm drinking the closest thing I can get. My corner deli, you can see the supplies running down. It's either mass market, um, like seltzers and, and some of the bigger craft breweries, or luckily a, a few local breweries. But I'm drinking Samuel Smith's Imperial Stout. It's not really a cask, but it's English. Tony, what are you drinking? Well, I'm supporting my local brewery. I am drinking a Ramstein Maybach. Excellent. Greg, what are you drinking? I also uh, couldn't get my hands on something more cask appropriate, but I did bust out. Uh, I have an Otto from the Wood from 2013, Hair of the Dog. Um, bottle condition, it held up beautifully. Great. And, uh, Paul, what are you drinking? <laughs> um, it's, the, it's the effect of the 2009 Fuller's Vintage Ale that I'm drinking. Um, yeah, it's really excellent, actually. I usually save these. I had two bottles of these. I usually save them. I usually drink one on uh, New Year's Eve. I think I've got up to about 2015. But uh, this one is particularly good. Um, sometimes they come out a bit muddy looking, but this one is absolutely bright, clear as a bell. Uh, it's really superb. Well, I, I was talking about, you know, the mystique of a good Cascale. I was reading a an English murder thriller. Can't remember the author. But the high moment was that he went into a dingy pub in his area, and there happened to be a Fuller's handle, and he ordered it. And, he, and it was one of uh, the finest uh, hand-pulled ales he had had in England as an Englishman. So there's a lot of beautiful memories and mystiques. Um, but let's go to Steve Hamburg. Steve, you know, the, you can read about the background of camera. There, there, there's a lot of information about it. And that really was, as, as Tony said, that was a whole nother generation ago. So Cass Mark came to the United States a few years ago. And Steve, tell us about that process and, and where it's at and why is Cass Mark important for the United States? I mean, there's thousands of Cass Mark pubs in England and how many are here in the U.S. Uh, well, first of all, uh, I'm drinking a an off-color milk stout, just so you know. So I have one of my local beers. Great uh, selection. There you go. Um, Cask Mark uh, was formed in 1998 in the U.K. In fact, I remember when it was rolled out. And basically, it was an industry-sponsored initiative. Uh, primarily from about four or five different brewers who were aghast at the low quality uh, of that their their own beers that were produced at uh, places like Fuller's. Uh, Fuller's was an early adopter of the cask mark scheme. But they found that when their beer left the brewery and went to trade, and particularly if it wasn't within their own clubs, that they found that uh, the beers were indifferently looked at. And they were appalled at the overall quality. So the Casmark uh, accreditation, so it's, an, it's basically an independent inspection. Uh, and it's an award given to the, the seller person at the pub. So uh, if there's a change in staff, for example, at that pub, uh, where that, uh, the sellerman leaves to go somewhere else, they have to be reaccredited. Uh, the initial uh, accreditation, uh, it's an independent um, sort of blind inspection. So in a, uh, usually either a retired brewer or someone who has a trained palate um, makes an unannounced visit to the pub and shows their identification. And they're, they're given uh, up to six of the beers that are on offer. And they are assessed in four different uh, levels for temperature, for clarity, for aroma, and for flavor. And uh, there's a 20-point scale, and beers must all beers have to achieve 16 on the 20-point scale. So um, it took a while, I think, 
for it to be widely adopted in the UK. But as I said, there are over 10,000 pubs now who have earned the accreditation. What's really good from a consumer standpoint is it's become um, a means beyond just looking at it. It used to be you'd get the Campaign for Real Ale's Good Beer Guide, and people would look for pubs that are in the Good Beer Guide. But um, that was often pubs were in the Good Beer Guide because people just thought the pubs were cool. And the beers actually were not always that well served. Uh, Cask Mark was a little bit different in that it focused solely on the quality of the beer being served. So it didn't matter whether you had a bad experience with the landlord or, hey, I don't, I don't like going there or I think this guy's an asshole. Uh, if the beers are really good and they pass these inspections, then they, they win the Cask Mark. So from a consumer standpoint, when you see the Cask Mark, um, and there's a shield that's displayed outside the pub. Um, and often uh, there are uh, there's special certificates that are displayed in the pub. But the consumer sees it and they know that, hey, this place knows how to, how to serve it. And by the way, if the consumer gets a subpar pint in those pubs, they can report it to Caspar. And uh, these places are re-inspected. So in the U.S., it's been a difficult sale. Uh, Paul Pendike was doing this beforehand, and he could tell you how difficult it is to get uh, pubs to be interested in the scheme, mainly because the U.S. is such a big country, and there are only so many places around the country that are seriously into serving Cascade. And they don't have the enthusiasm um, to seek this sort of certification. And also, it just doesn't have any meaning, because Mark is the cask ale is so traditional to Great Britain, even if most people don't drink cask ales in Britain, they're still familiar with traditional ales. In the U.S., people have no idea what they are. They just think the Brits drink warm, flat, and cloudy beer. So uh, I think there's a, there's a place for cask mark here, uh, but it takes much more of a passion from the, the pub operator. Um, and I think there's a greater chance to see it now that there are more tap rooms where the brewers themselves can look after the beers on premises. Uh, right now, there are only about a dozen places in the United States who have, who have the casks, cask mark certification. Um, and I'm always working to get others in. So if Greg wants to get his guys in the program, I'd love to have them. Okay, let, let's get Paul on. Following up on that. Yeah. Hi, uh, Jimmy. Yeah. I, um, as Steve mentioned, you know, I got involved with Cast Mark a number of years ago. And, um, you know, Steve's absolutely correct. I mean, it's, it's, a, it's a tough sell. Um, you know, there's a number of places that are doing a great job and, um, you know, deserve to have it on display. Um, but again, you know, it, 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 is, it, it is a tough sell. There's no doubt about it. Again, like I mentioned earlier, you know, you've got to have somebody that's passionate about it, that cares about it. You know, it's, it's, it's not brain surgery, but it's more complicated than putting a keg on. Um, so you really need someone that cares about it, um, you know, and the, the, the cellarman that's going to look after it and make sure the carbonation level is correct and the temperature, the clarity before he pushes that pint uh, to the customer across the uh, across the bar but um you know i've had some great pints in the u.s but i've also had a lot of terrible cast pints as well unfortunately and that's in a way is uh, makes it more difficult to establish any foothold because you haven't got that consistency i mean there's no pubs in england that don't serve good cascade as steve or tony or anybody will uh, confirm but um it's definitely easier to find ones that are serving good cascade than it is in the u.s but thank you, Paul. I mean, the great thing about American craft beer is that not just the great traditions of English or German or Belgian-style beers, uh, there's so much that's happened in this country. It is hard, hard to kind of pin down uh, to a certain style. But I'd like to ask Michael, uh, our good friend Chris Kuzme, now at Fifth, Fifth Hammer Brewing, he, mm -hmm. uh, he asked a question, which I thought was it's pretty technical. Um, he says, uh, the question is, to sparkler or not to sparkler? <laughs> and if so, 0.6 millimeter or 0.1 millimeter? First, explain to us what the hell that means. 
Well, the sparkler, I mean, Paul could get a little bit more technical with actually uh, why. Well, I'll tell you why sparkle. I mean, generally it's a northern thing because people in the north of England prefer to see a little bit of um, foam and head on the beer. Whereas in the south of England, Paul, of course, correct me if I'm, if I'm wrong about this. But in the south, um, people are, are happier with a little bit more, of, uh, less of a head on a pint. So the sparkler really fits onto, um, onto the beer engine to essentially uh, oxygenate, I believe, the beer as it, as it leaves the beer engine just to provide a little bit extra head and a little creaminess. Um, I'm, I'm a no sparkler guy, but uh, that's probably because the breweries that I have a lot of affinity for are generally in, in the south of England and the southwest of England, particularly. And Paul? Um, yeah, Michael's correct. It was more of a northern thing with the sparkler. I also think that, you know, that divide doesn't really exist like it used to, but I think some of the beers that were brewed in England could handle the sparkler because it will, <laughs> you know, it will knock the carbonation out of the beer. It's making the carbonation come into the head and can also change the flavor profile. And I think some of the northern beers, and, you know, Steve can jump in here as well, but I think some of the northern beers, not so much necessarily today, but in the past, were ones that could handle that better than the, you know, the southern beers were a little bit more delicate. You know, when you get into breweries like, uh, you know, Black Sheep, where they're still using Yorkshire Squares, um, which is a pretty interesting fermentation vessel where there's two levels and the yeast has to be recirculated and all this. Um, you know, I think beers like that can handle the sparkler a bit better. I mean, when, when we had the pub, you know, to sparkle or not to sparkle, um, I used to, you know, kind of say it sort of depends on the beer. You know, I mean, I would say try it without the sparkler and try it with the sparkler and, and see which way you thought was the best. Um, but yeah, I mean, down you know in London, I mean a lot of the a lot of the beer engines in the old days in London, you know, did not have that long swan neck, which would enable you to really use a sparkler. You know, when you use a sparkler correctly, you should. There's a tip on the end of a sparkler in most cases, and that should be touching the bottom of the glass, and then you should pull the pint and keep the uh, sparkler beneath the head of the beer. Well, a lot of the beer engines that you see in the south of England, the old ones, the old Gascon chamber, chambers, the big um, cabinet models, you don't see that long swan neck, you know, so they're just pouring the beer into the, in, in, into the side of the glass. And, you know, they used to um, utilize a piece of equipment called an auto back. And I... <laughs> Uh, last time I was up in Yorkshire, it was a number of years ago now, actually, but I saw this still being utilized in the pub. And what would happen is they would pull the pint, and as it overflowed into the drip tray, that would have a drain on it that would go back into the cask. Totally unhygienic, of course. <laughs> um, but, you know, they just, they'd really keep pumping and pumping and pumping and pumping this. And... You know, the result was it would look like a Guinness being poured, of course, you know. And I think that's where nitro beers came from, was to try and replicate the softer carbonation and that cascading effect of the carbonation that you would get with cascale that was dispensed through a sparkler. So, yeah, Michael, Michael had it right. And then we can say this, and we finally reached a, an agreement. It's that soft mouthfeel that a proper cast condition ale has that's the magic well yeah the, yeah. the quality of the of the carbon dioxide is different isn't it um when it undergoes the natural process rather than forced carbonation um I, maybe it's maybe technically it's a uh, it's a finer carbon dioxide um which is maybe leading towards what paul was talking about how sometimes you get almost the nitro feel um it uh yeah it's almost uh, ineffable um the 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 feeling of drinking a cascale um because it is such a fine mouthfeel but i think it really is the quality of the carbon dioxide from the natural process paul is there a little bit more technical on that 
Well, I mean, Steve is mostly jumping. He's, he's the technician, I think. But I think when you naturally carbonate it as, a, as opposed to false carbonate it, I think the bubbles are smaller with natural carbonation. Yeah. And hence, yeah, I think I that's feel. why you get a soft mouthfeel. Hmm. Well, yeah, exactly. I, I will let me jump in. Um, the, the one issue I've seen with the use of the sparkler, we can get there, is that the sparkler has been used uh, by a lot, of, a lot of brewers to essentially make up for the fact that the beer that they have on is too flat to begin with. And so if you pour it without the sparkler, if you push it through, you get that temporary boost of what of apparent carbonation that gets forced through the head. So it makes a flat beer even flatter, actually. Yeah. So the question really comes in from a technical side is you have to think about what the beer is and what it tastes like uh, without the sparkler. So what a cellarman will do typically is assess the carbonation of the beer. And you can decide, now I think beers like stouts or porters or even certain miles where they they benefit from having kind of a creamier mouthfeel but others where you want to get that bitterness through a little bit better like in a, a pint of bitter a pale ale uh, even an IPA you want a little uh, carbonation otherwise much of the the hop character gets forced to the head so mm. you have to make that assessment as a cellarman uh, to decide whether uh, that beer really is more suitable. A lot of it is personal preference. But um, I think there's a tendency for all of us to uh, think that all these beers are served. At their, the, carbon, the natural carbonation level is so low that uh, I hate to lose it carbonation. Now, and the standard that most people hear is that you're aiming at one volume of CO2 in solution in a cask. Whereas in most pressurized American beers, we're talking well over two or to three, almost four volumes of CO2. Now, I think from a sellability standpoint, and I think uh, Greg could certainly help on this one, is I think having a little bit more carbonation really helps in the American market. So I recommend to people to uh, make sure to brewers when they're racking to make sure that they have uh, more fermentables in the beer so that they have a livelier cask. If it's really lively, a cellarman can adjust that carbonation accordingly. But if there's a no carbonation in that beer to begin with when you breach the cask, you just got a flat beer. Thank so, you, Steve. Hey, uh, Greg, we're, we're going to wrap it up. But, Greg, do you want to add anything before we close out? Yeah, totally. Uh, and I, I, I totally agree with all of that. I mean, we have, you know, uh, once upon a time, we eschewed sparklers and and co2 breathers and all these other things to try for really natural cast presentation and uh that was wrong <laughs> i can say now that it's better to give us a fighting chance to make people love cask ale and i think that co2 breathers and sparklers help with that but i definitely agree with all these points i mean for sure if we have an active cask uh, we may not even use a sparkler or we'll use the 0.6 mil millimeter. Um, if one is not as active, we'll use the one milliliter, millimeter um, sparkler. And then also to the same, the same question about style. Um, certain beers that are supposed to be creamier, we use the smaller, uh, we use the large, uh, I'm sorry, the, the larger millimeter. And then those that need a little bit more sparkle, we'll go to the smaller millimeter. So I think it is important um, to, to think about which ones we're using. But at the end of the day, sparklers and, and breathers, I think, are our friends. I think they're going to be the things that are going to make more people trust Cascale for the time being. And who knows, um, five, ten years from now, we may have some true sellermen and seller women who can handle casks in a way that breathers and, and, and uh, sparklers aren't as needed. Thank you, Greg. Guys, this was a great show. Michael at Duchess Sales, thanks so much for helping to put this show together. Greg Angert of the Grand Delancey, Paul Pendike of UK Brewing Supplies, Steve Hamburg, Cask Mark, and Tony Ford of Ale Street News. Thanks for joining me here on the Heritage Radio Network. I'm Jimmy Carboni. Thanks to our producer, Dylan Hoyer, and engineer, Matt Patterson. We'll catch you next time on Beer Sessions Radio. All right. Woo! Beer Sessions Radio is powered by Simplecast. 
Thanks for listening to Heritage Radio Network, food radio supported by you. For our freshest content, subscribe to our newsletter. Enter your email at the bottom of our website, heritageradionetwork.org. Connect with us on Instagram and Twitter at heritage underscore radio. You can also find us at facebook.com slash heritage radio network. Heritage Radio Network is a nonprofit organization driving conversations to make the world a better, fairer, more delicious place. And we couldn't do it without support from listeners like you. Want to be part of the food world's most innovative community? Subscribe to the shows you like. Tell your friends and please join the HRN family by becoming a member. Just click on the beating heart at the top right of our homepage. Thanks for listening. As the news of coronavirus reverberates throughout the world, we at HRN are especially concerned about how coronavirus will impact our food system. We will use our platform to support the restaurant, agriculture, hospitality, and other food-related industries by maintaining our coverage and operations. As social distancing becomes the temporary norm, podcasts are more important than ever. There's never been a more crucial time to stay informed about the state of our food system and the ways that food connects our global community. We're sharing all of our COVID-19 coverage at heritageradionetwork.org COVID-19. From interviews with nonprofit leaders and journalists, to first-hand accounts from chefs and restaurant owners, to reports on how this crisis is affecting regional farms. Our team is working remotely from all over to keep food radio alive. HRN needs your support more than ever to keep sharing essential stories and resources with our listeners. Make a donation of any amount. Visit heritageradionetwork.org slash donate.